Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm Jared Brummett, audio engineer and editor, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. In this episode, we're diving into the next installment of our study in Philippians. Rob delivered this message at Unity Free Will Baptist Church in Greenville, North Carolina. As always, we would like to invite you to visit robertjmorgan.com, where you'll find Rob's blog post, podcast feed, bookstore, free resources, and more. If you've not already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Now, here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. Thank you very, very much. I have been looking forward to being here. I thought Jeff Manning would never invite me, (laughs) and I'm honored to be here. I have so much respect for Dr. Manning. He's been a friend of mine for many years, and then I've watched him from a distance as he has been a faithful student of the Scripture, a wonderful pastor and expositor, and uh, I know most of the people here on your staff, and I just... um, appreciate this church. If I lived in this area, I would love to come here and sit under uh, uh, Brother Jeff's preaching and teaching and and be a part of this church. I would just join here in a second. Uh, I live in Nashville and uh, grew up on the um, East Tennessee, North Carolina border. And I was in North Carolina an awfully lot as a child because my father had an apple orchard that was on the Tennessee, North Carolina line. And so, and the Appalachian Trail went through it in those days. And so, uh, I, I, I just have, have looked forward to being here. I want to say a couple of things um, before I get started, which is that there are a lot of resources that may be of help to you. And you can find most of them at my website, which is just my name, robertjmorgan.com. All of my books are there. Um, Brother Jeff mentioned um, uh, my podcast, so I do. I have a Bible teaching podcast every week, and right now I'm going through Philippians, and we're actually pulling the audio uh, of these two sessions uh, for my segments because I didn't have time to go to the studio and tape them. So, but you can follow along my entire study of Philippians, everything else that I do on whatever podcast um, app you use, uh, Spotify or Apple Music or whatever it is. And also on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter every day, I put a 59-second Bible study. And you can just search me out there. I just went through the book of Isaiah, if you can believe it, one minute at a time, teaching through Isaiah. So all of that is available, and I would love uh, for you to... um, to find something among these resources that would be of help to you. And uh, my most recent book is a study of the book of Revelation. My conviction is that every Christian ought to understand the book of Revelation, and it's very understandable. It is uh, all of the 65 books of the Bible lead to Revelation, and all 22 chapters of Revelation lead to heaven. And it's a book people say, is that, isn't it difficult and uh, dark? And I say, 
now it's sequential and it's full of hope. It's full of heaven. It's full of Jesus. It's full of celebration. It's full of judgment about evil. It is full of what God is going to do for all of us in the future. It is a very hopeful book for us to know in times like this. So my book is called The 50 Final Events in World History. The 50 Final Events in World History, and you can find it wherever you buy your, your books. When Queen Elizabeth died, we all watched or heard about that funeral. It was so interesting. She was a genuine believer. I have friends in England who know the royal family, and they reassure me that she knew the Lord and loved the Lord. And you could tell that by the funeral. She chose the scripture and what she wanted everybody to say and the songs, and it radiated Christ all the way through. But the other members of the royal family are not necessarily Christians or at least born-again followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, and there's a lot of problems. And if you go to Amazon or anywhere you buy books, and you Google or you Amazon, you search there for Prince William and Prince Harry, there are so many books about the difficulty that those brothers are having getting along together. And some people blame Meghan Markle and some people blame other things. And, and the whole drama, the soap opera of the royal family has kept book publishers and tabloids and a lot of television reality shows in business. Um, it can't possibly be true that everything in all of these books is real. People, I think, make things up. But when the king's kids cannot get along together, it creates a scandal and it creates difficulty for the royal family, and it is a reproach to the crown. Well, the king of kings has children too. He has children all over this planet, in every nation, every city, every place, and it's a shame when they can't get along together because it brings reproach. The world looks at our homes, our families, our marriages, they say Christian marriages are just as bad off as those without Christ. They look at their, our churches, our Christian organizations, our groups, and where there is unity, the Bible says it's like being flooded with oil that runs down your face and down your beard. That's an Old Testament picture of unity. But when there is disunity, then it brings about uh, reproach and, and difficulty. People say, what is wrong with that church that the king's kids cannot get along together? But it's a very old problem. It goes back to the disciples squabbling as they followed the Lord Jesus Christ, even in the upper room and even following the resurrection. And it goes back to Paul, who couldn't get along with Barnabas. And so the first missionary team in church history was split up. It is a very old problem. And so there are some very old writings about it. The Lord wants to address this. He wants to say in your marriages, in your relationship with your kids or your parents or your brothers or your sisters and in your church and in your Christian enterprises, you need to get along. And one of these books that deals with this, not as a primary theme, but as a sub-theme, is the book of Philippians. 
Paul had established this church in Philippi, and then he had gone on with his labors. And 10 or so years later, after he had been arrested in Jerusalem, he had gone to um, Caesarea under imprisonment for two years. I think during that time, Luke wrote the gospel. And then he was under house arrest in Rome for another two years. And I think during that time, Luke wrote the book of Acts. But Paul was there in a five-year period, incarcerated in one way or the other, and he heard that the church in Philippi was thriving, it was doing well, they were standing up to pressure and persecution, but they were having some problems getting along with one another. The king's kids in Philippi were having some difficulties. And so Paul addresses this sometimes subtly and sometimes uh, overtly in his book. So if you look at Philippians chapter 1, his prayer for them, in the introduction of this little book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 9, says, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, so that you might approve the things that are excellent, and you may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So his prayer for them is that they will just have a more mature love. Now, a lot of us have love for somebody, our husband, our wife, our kids, our co-workers, but we don't have a mature love or a mature enough love. Love needs to mature. And Paul was praying here, that his love, that their love for one another would mature. It's a good thing to say, Lord, help my love to mature for my family. I need a more mature love for my world. I need a more mature love for the politicians with whom I disagree so that I can pray for them. I need a more mature love in this world. And that's what Paul was praying for in chapter 1. Now, over in chapter 4, he actually calls two ladies by name you Odia and Sintika. And he says, will you please try to get along better? So we know there is some difficulty, there is some dysfunction in this church in Philippi, but the primary passage, which is the Bible's premier passage about being one in spirit with each other, is in chapter 2. It is an extraordinary passage. We call it the kenosis passage because of one particular Greek word there. It is the most supreme thing that the Apostle Paul ever wrote about Jesus Christ. You would think that he was writing it in order to give us a theology of who Jesus Christ is, to give us what we call a Christology. And he was doing that, but that wasn't the primary reason he was doing it. He was doing it in order to show that as Jesus he uh, was humbling himself in order to be servants of us, so we should learn to do that to one another. That's the great emphasis of the first paragraph, this great paragraph of Philippians chapter 2. And that's what I want to deal with in both sessions this morning. So turn with me to Philippians 2 and verse number 1, and I want to read these first five verses. It says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, 
if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, the first word there, therefore, harkens back to the previous paragraph. And the previous paragraph is the key to understanding the whole book. It begins with chapter 1, verse 27, goes through chapter 1, verse 30. He says in this particular text, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And the word there, let your conduct be worthy, is a word that in the Greek language we get our word political from. And it means citizenship. Make sure that your conduct is worthy of the conduct of citizens of heaven. We are not citizens of earth who are going to heaven. We are citizens of heaven who are traveling through earth. And he says, let your conduct here be that which is appropriate, worthy of those who are citizens of heaven, so that whether I come to see you or am absent, I will hear that you are standing fast in one spirit. And he goes on to say that he is hearing that they are struggling the way that he is and suffering the way that he is. And we understand that this was written in the age of the emperor Nero. And Nero was thought to be the Lord and God. He was a young man who became emperor before he was anywhere near mature enough, and he went down from there, and he was a madman. But he demanded to be worshipped, and this was creating an atmosphere of oppression in the early church. So with this pressure came some fracturing of the church. You know, I've noticed, I don't know if you have, but I've been pastoring for 43 years that you can take pressure and put it on one couple and it will make that couple stronger in their relationship. They'll love each other more. They will get through it together. You can take the same pressure, put on another couple, and it will divide them. Well, the pressure here was creating some fractures within the Philippian church. And Paul said, I want you to stand firm in one spirit. You see what I'm suffering? And I know you're suffering, and we've got to stay together. And therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if there is any love, if there is any fellowship of the Holy Spirit, that's chapter 2. Now, does that passage remind you of any other passage in the Bible? Let me repeat it. If there is, or we could say, since there is the consolation of Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, then you should have tenderness and compassion that would allow you 
to come together with oneness and deal with the pressure by being one. This is very, very reminiscent of the great apostolic benediction in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 14. I mean, there are the parallel here is almost unmistakable. You know, I love benedictions, and one of the favorite parts of my pastoring for all of those years was pronouncing the benediction at the end of the service. And there are two great benedictions in the Bible. The word benedict simply means a good word, but it was the biblical way for ending a worship service. And so there were two great benedictions in the Bible. There were others as well. But in the Old Testament, we had the Mosaic, or we call it the Aaronic benediction because Aaron and the priest would pronounce it, or sometimes it was called the priestly benediction. And it says in Numbers chapter 6, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And when the Israelites would be dismissed, that was the word uttered over them by the priests. And notice the threefold use there of the Lord. It was, I think, a foreshadowing of the Trinity. The Lord God the Father bless you and keep you. The Lord Jesus Christ, may his countenance be upon you. The Lord the Holy Spirit, may he but the doctrine of the Trinity was still developing in Scripture. But anytime you see that threefold order, then from our perspective, we think of the Trinity. And so throughout the Old Testament days, that was the benediction that was offered. Now, when Paul came, he sort of remodified that. And at the end of Corinthians, he said, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you both now and forever. Amen. You have the grace of Jesus. You have the love of God. You have the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Those three elements are mentioned in the same order here in Philippians chapter 2. He says, therefore, if there is any grace or consolation from Jesus Christ, if there is any love from God the Father, if there is any fellowship with the Holy Spirit, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. What he is saying is that when you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, you have the power of the entire Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit coming in to change your life, and that ought to make a difference in your relationships. That's the simplicity of it. My father, uh, the Jacksons, knew my dad. We were talking about it. But he was born in 1911 and grew up at the head of a holler, as we say, in East Tennessee, and there was no electricity. And I've often wished that I'd ask him about the time that electricity came to the mountains. It's when the TVA began building the dams and creating the Tennessee Valley Authority, creating um, electricity, electrifying the rural mountain areas. But I've read a lot about it. When those final lines were strung, 
to the individual houses, it was a red letter day. I read about one man who went running into his house and he started turning the lights on up and down, up and down, off and on, off and on. He ran to every room that had never seen anything like it before. He was overwhelmed and he fainted. They had to bring him to with uh, smelling salts. I read about a five-year-old fella who uh, said, I remember two, where I was two times in my life when something dramatic happened. Once was when John Kennedy was assassinated. I can remember exactly where I was. But the other time was when I was five years old and electricity came to our house. And people's lives were changed. Now they had lights. Now they had heat. Now they had power. Now they could hear music from far away. Now they could see the world. Now they could cook their food and churn their butter and wash their clothes. They could do it all by electricity. Well, when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, we are electrified. It's as dramatic a change in our lives as that is. And we are the only ones who are in this world. 1 John chapter 4 verse 19 says, we are the children of God and the whole world is under the control of the evil one. The whole world is dark, but we have light and we have warmth and we have power and we can hear music from far away and we can see the world in a realistic way and we have been electrified by the great power cables coming to us from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We have the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and all of the consolation that brings. And we have the love of God like a bottomless ocean. And we have the fellowship of the Holy Spirit who comes to live not only around us but within us. And that should give us tenderness in our lives warmth in our lives, a light on our face. The Bible says those who look to him are radiant. It allows us to hear the music of the Lord in our hearts and to see the world through his insights. And Paul is saying here, when the Trinity, when this benediction comes and touches your life, it is like a cable from heaven running down to earth plugging into your heart, and it changes everything about you. And that should produce within you tenderness and compassion. And if it does, then you can make my joy complete. He said, now I'm joyful, and you know that the book of Philippians is a book of joy, you can go through, I believe it's 16 or 17 times the word joy or rejoice uh, is in Philippians. If I ever go through a depressing day, I'm very likely to find a copy of the Bible somewhere that I haven't marked in. Uh, I have to look hard to find them. Someone said a, um, a well-marked Bible is a well-fed soul. I love to underline and mark and write in my Bibles. But I'll try to find one and I'll read through the book of Philippians again and circle every time that the word joy and, rejoice, uh, and rejoicing appears. It's very, very difficult to stay depressed when you read through the book of Philippians and you find the joy here. But Paul is saying, 
despite all of this, I'm not as joyful as I could be. I am not as happy as I could be because I know that there is division in your church. Whenever there is division, it reduces our joy. It never increases our joy when you and your wife or you and your parents or you and your professor or you and your coach are having a squabble of some kind. It doesn't increase your joy. It reduces it. And it reduces the joy of everybody else around you. But when we are unified, then that brings, that increases, that heightens the joy that we have and that everybody else has. There is nothing quite so joyful as being in oneness with someone. And so look at this again in verse 1. Therefore, if there is any consolation, grace, in Christ, if any comfort of his love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, in other words, if the Trinity and the Trinitarian benediction has electrified your life, then you will have affection and mercy, and you will be able to increase my joy here in this prison cell or this house arrest where I am. Because the influence of the Trinity and your life will allow you to do something that you cannot do on your own. The Father's love and the Savior's grace and the Holy Spirit's fullness in your life as you walk in the Spirit and you're filled in the Spirit and you fall in step with the Holy Spirit. They will do something in your life that will allow you to live the impossibility of verse number 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. This is impossible for anyone to do who has not experienced the electrification of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. We are the only people in all of the world who can do this. And we cannot do it on our own strength. We have to allow the Lord Jesus Christ to do his work through us by means of the Holy Spirit. Just as Jesus Christ, as we'll see, lay aside his prerogatives. And he didn't do the work that he did in his own omnipotent intrinsic power. But he did what the Father wanted him to do by the power of the Holy Spirit, which he received at his baptism at the Jordan River. So we cannot do what he wants us to do by our own power, but only by the indwelling spirit operating through us so that we can obey the words of Jesus and replicate his life and so please him by the spirit that we received when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. And so this is what this passage is telling us. But he says, this is what to do. This is the supernatural life. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition. It doesn't say here that we should not have ambition. Ambition is a very good thing. We've just got to be ambitious for the Lord, for what he wants, for his will in our lives. Success in the Bible, if you want to be successful, is simply doing what the Lord has called you to do every single day. Psalm 119 verse 16 says, You saw me before I was born and scheduled each 
day of my life before I began to breathe. Every day was recorded in your book. And so success is simply doing what God calls us to do every day, and he has ambitious plans for us. He wants to use you. He wants to use you in ways beyond what you know. He wants to use you to change the world and to touch many people. He wants to use you as long as he keeps you on this globe. And then he wants to use you in heaven. He wants to use you until you don't have any breath left in your body, nor any beat in your heart. As long as you're alive, he wants to use you every day, and we should be ambitious to fulfill everything that God wants us to do. Be ambitious to do whatever it is that God wants you to do. D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, said, I've always been an ambitious man, but I've been ambitious for the kingdom, for what the Lord wanted me to do. But the modifier here is selfish. Do not do anything out of selfish ambition. Don't try to build your own kingdom. Don't try to acclaim a lot of adoration for yourself. Don't worry too much about fame and fortune. In the airport yesterday, I saw a book about all of the distresses that have destroyed the lives of people who became celebrities because they could not handle the pressures of the role which they had so dreamed about fulfilling. Don't worry about fame and fortune. Just say, Lord, what do you want me to do with my life? What do you want me to do this year? What do you want me to do next? What do you want me to do today? And do it with all of your heart. The Bible says, whatever you do, do it with all of your heart. And that is ambition. Dr. David Jeremiah told me this is his life's verse from Colossians chapter 3. And I'll tell you, he does whatever he does. And he doesn't stop doing it. I've never seen anyone so determined. He is a very ambitious man. But it's for the kingdom. And he says, Lord, I want to do everything that you want me to do while I can do it for your sake. And so we do all that we can for his kingdom with ambition, but it's not selfish ambition. It's because only Jesus can help the people who come across our paths and we are ambitious to help them. So do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Everybody does everything they do in this world except for believers for reasons of conceit. They want affirmation. We all need affirmation. Some people, they don't get any affirmation from the Lord. So their whole life is a quest for affirmation. They want to be known. They want to be respected. They want to be recognized. And there's nothing wrong about being respected and recognized except that if it is all centered around you, then it's a very poor substitute for a fulfilling life, which only Jesus can give. So we don't do anything out of vain conceit or selfish ambition, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Now, this does not mean that we develop an inferiority complex and help other people develop a superiority complex. 
This doesn't mean that we should go around saying, I'm no good, I'm worthless, what a wreck I am, what a mess I am. Do you know there are some people who, in a desire to get attention, will sort of criticize themselves, hoping that the person they are talking to will build them up and say, oh no, you are gifted, you are good, you, you can play ball better than... you." But what happens is that if you keep self-talking about being no good, you begin to believe what you are saying about yourself and your self-image suffers. And, you know, the Bible says in Romans chapter 12 that we should not think more highly or more lowly of ourselves than we should, but we should think soberly. We should just say, Lord, I have weaknesses, I have strengths, but you can use my strengths and you can even use my weaknesses. And so what this verse means is that we should look at other people and be more concerned about their needs than we are our own. And this is what Jesus said in the golden rule. This is Paul's version here. Uh, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3 is Paul's version of the golden rule. Jesus said, treat others as you would want to be treated. And Paul is saying the same thing here in very vivid language. He's saying, consider the needs of other people more important than your own. And of course, this is the biblical way. This is an extraordinary way of life. Nobody else can do this except the believers, and we can't do it in our own efforts. It's the role of the Holy Spirit replicating the personality of Jesus Christ through us as we walk in the Spirit and as we are filled in the Holy Spirit. This is the fruit of the Spirit. I mean, it says love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. The Holy Spirit develops within us the personality of Jesus Christ as we grow in him. And so that results in the life in which we suddenly begin noticing the needs of people around us more than our own needs. You can never see this if you aren't electrified by the Trinity. You never notice this unless you have the heart of Jesus Christ being developed within you by the Holy Spirit according to the will of God. But as you go through life, you begin to notice those people have needs. This society has needs. My husband, my wife, my children, my parents, they have needs. What can I do to meet someone's need today? And when you wake up, and you say to yourself, what can I do to meet somebody else's need today? It changes your day. It goes on to say in verse 4, let each of you look, not only to his own interests. We have to look at our own interests. We have to make sure that our bank accounts are balanced and that our lives are well regulated and that we're having our daily devotions and that we are conducting ourselves well and that everything that we are responsible for is being handled in a faithful way. But don't just look at your own interests, but also of the interest of others. Look around you and see what their needs are. See what you need to do to help them. John Newton was the uh, great poet and pastor who wrote the song Amazing Grace. Now, he, here's another little verse that he wrote, and it goes along exactly like this. He uses the apostolic 
benediction, puts it in versified form, and then he talks about its impact on us. He says, may the grace of Christ our Savior and the Father's boundless love with the Holy Spirit's favor rest upon us from above. Thus, may we abide in union with each other and the Lord and possess in sweet communion joys which earth cannot afford. Now, it confuses people when this doesn't work correctly in our marriages, our homes, or our churches, or our denominations, or our missions organizations, or our sports teams, or our Christian schools. Why is it that Christians have a very difficult time getting along with one another? And there are a couple of reasons. Of course, we have the devil attacking us. Secondly, Christians, by their very nature, have very deep convictions. We believe what we believe very, very deeply. And thirdly, in any group, there are a variety of personalities that come from a variety of backgrounds possessing a variety of levels of maturity. So when you go into, in, into any church, this one included, but you know, whatever church you attend, there are going to be some people there that are very mature, some people that are very immature, maybe some people that are not Christian yet at all. And so you take people who have very deep convictions from a variety of backgrounds and you bring them together with varying levels of maturity and the devil is opposing you, then it's very easy for there to be division in that situation. But Paul is saying here, you cannot solve this just by trying to be a better person. It takes the electrifying, energizing power of the Trinity, all three persons surging through you like an electrical current to create within you the mind, the attitude, and the heart of Christ towards one another. And as you grow in that, then you don't find it's hard to get along. You find that it's hard not to get along because getting along is so much better, so much happier, and the easiest way, really, to become a humble person. I'll give you a, a little practical hint. If you want to become a more humble person, then just start acting like one. I mean, doing humble things. Now, you don't do it out of a prideful or artificial sense of performance. You just say, well, I'll give you an example. I was walking in the park. I used to run, and now I walk. But I was walking through the park the other day, and there was a, something, a piece of trash I should have picked up. And I walked right on by, and I didn't pick it up. And I thought to myself, if I were a humble person, I would have picked up that piece of trash and put it over in that trash can. And that little thing convicted me. But the Lord, well... I don't want to blame the Lord with it, but there was a, about a hundred yards later, there was a crumpled up Coca-Cola can. So I said, here's my chance. And I picked up that Coca-Cola can and carried it to the next trash can. 
And the Lord said, that was very good. When you go shopping at the grocery store, don't leave your cart out there in the middle of the parking lot. Just take it back to where you're supposed to put it. I mean, simple little things. If you're driving down the interstate and someone wants to get in front of you, then tap your brake and let them get in front of you. If you want to have the last word in an argument, just tell yourself, I'm going to listen to the last word. I'm not going to speak it. And just be content with that. I mean, if you learn to do the simple, gracious things that represent humility, then it will begin to develop within you. And you'll find graciousness and the love of Jesus Christ comes exactly. Let me close with this one illustration. This man is not someone that I would recommend to you because I don't agree with his worldview. But on this particular subject, he did it just right. His name was Richard Paul Evans. He is a New York Times best-selling writer, very well known, not a follower of Jesus Christ, but, but he and his wife Carrie were very different. They couldn't get along. And even with added fame and fortune, they were fighting all of the time. And they were bitter fights. And they would say bitter things to one another. And he was on a book tour one day, Richard Paul Evans. He was on a book tour in Atlanta, staying at the Ritz-Carlton and Buckhead. He had a furious argument with his wife on the phone. He slammed down the phone. He thought, there is nothing for us except the divorce. But he was overwhelmed with the thought of it. And he went to take a shower and he began crying in the shower. And he cried out, God, why can I not be a better husband? What is wrong with me? And he began weeping so much he just fell down in the shower. And under that water, he said, God, will you please make me a better husband? Save my marriage. And he went back home and he walked in and his wife didn't say anything at all to him. And the next morning, he rolled over in bed and he said to his wife, Carrie, he said, what can I do to make your day better today? She said, what? <laughs> he repeated it. She said, nothing. And he said, well, there's got to be something. What can I do to make your day better today? She said, go clean the kitchen. And he did. And the next day, he said the same thing. And in spite, she said, go clean the garage. And he did. And he kept doing that for two or three days. And finally, she said, why are you doing this? And he said, because I realize that I've not been a very good husband and that my job is to make every day better in your life. And she said, well, I don't think you can. But for the next several days, he would get up and say, now, what can I do today to help you have a better day? And finally, she looked around at him, and she started crying. And he lifted her head with his hand, and he said, I love you. And I know we've been having a lot of problems, but I genuinely want to begin living with this question, what can I do to make your day better? She said, I should be asking you that question. He said, probably, but not now. 
He said, I'm the one working on this now. What can I do to make your day better today? She said, why don't we just spend the day doing things together? And he said, that was when we saved our marriage. Now, this is the question of Philippians chapter 2. What can you do to make somebody else's day better? How can you diffuse a disagreement? How can you, in humility, put the needs of somebody else first? You cannot do it in your own strength. But when the electricity of the Holy Spirit strikes you, and you have the love of God and the grace of Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, then light and heat and warmth and power and music come into your life and you and I ought to be different. And as we grow in that difference, the world will know that we are Christians by our love. Well, in the next session, we'll pick it up with verse 5 and go on. But thank you for listening in this hour. Let me close in prayer. And now, Lord, we pray that the love of God, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit will truly be in this place and in our hearts, every one of us, young and old, today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thanks for digging into the riches of the Bible with me. And I hope that you'll share this podcast with a friend. This episode was produced by Joshua Rowe and the marketing company, Clearly Media. Audio editing is done by Jared Brummett. Print editing and blog posting by Sherry Anderson and Luke Tyler. And music by Jordan Davis and Elijah Rowe. Thank you for listening, everyone. And may God be with you until we meet again.